Welcome to the story of the Old Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. Uh, We're here for week 12 of our reading plan, March 19 through 25. And we are in Leviticus chapters 10 through 15 and Psalms 56 through 60. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad you're here uh, to walk through the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Last week, we, we began the book of Leviticus. We talked about how daunting it can be, but we've talked about the sacrifices, um, what they symbolize, how to understand them, um, all the different types, you know, the guilt offering, the peace offering, the whole burnt offering, etc. And and if we uh, if you read eight and nine, you saw how the Lord, how Aaron, the priest, right, they were ordained and set aside ceremonially to their office. And eventually it was a great time, wasn't it? Because. Um, In Leviticus chapter 24, we read, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So God's presence was seen as they put together, you know, the tabernacle was completed. The priests were, uh, went through the proper uh, rituals and ceremonies that God had ordained for them. And the Lord himself um, sent fire out to consume the burnt offering. And the people see this, they fall on their faces and they worship the Lord. There, there, there is this uh, holy reverence that this God, the God of Sinai is our redeemer, our God, um, our Lord. And they realize who he is. He's the God who's already forgiven them of their sin of unfaithfulness to him. Right, um, because of their unfaithfulness already at Mount Sinai in chapter thirty-two of Exodus, and here he is now showing his his presence, his power, his holiness, and his grace. But now, when we turn to chapter ten, which is where we begin this week, we begin at chapter ten, and something happens that kind of, um, well. It kind of puts a damper on the whole mood, doesn't it? Look at uh, chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. It offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So Aaron's sons die. The same sons that had just been ceremonially uh, ordained, set aside, put into the office of priesthood. The same sons, I believe earlier in Exodus chapter 24, had ate and drank with God in God's presence, are now dead. Two of Aaron's sons. This is a... The first section here I want to read from is from Andrew Bonar. We've read from Horatius Bonar. I think we read last week from him. Uh, His brother was Andrew, another uh, great Scottish writer from the past. He's got a whole commentary on Leviticus, which is very Christ-centered, Christ-focused. He's an older writer from the 1800s. So I'd really recommend him, by the way, if you're going to Leviticus and you're thinking, I need some help, well, look up Andrew Bonar, B-O-N-A-R, And if you type in Leviticus commentary, I'm sure something will show up uh, for you online. It's available online for free. Uh, But this section here is called the fencing of the priestly ritual. 
And he writes this. This event occurred at a time when its effect was likely to spread the most solemn awe over priests and people, and occurring as it did in the persons of Aaron's sons, who were men of station and office, the influence of the lesson taught would diffuse itself over all ranks of men in the camp. After spending the day in the manner mentioned in the former chapter, after presenting the blood, uh, like we see in verses 12, 13, and 18, and seeing their father Aaron go in with Moses into the holy place, they seem to have felt impatient at not being allowed to take a more prominent part in conducting the services. And perhaps they thought that they too might enter the holy place and offer incense. Accordingly, next morning, it would appear they both engaged in a most daring and presumptuous project. If, as many believe from verses 9 and 10, they had drank too freely and so became elated, their sin might be reckoned a sudden temptation. But I rather suppose that it was a deliberate sin, proceeding from a jealous, sullen heart. And the injunction in verses 9 and 10, like that of Ezekiel forty-four twenty-one, was suggested at such a time by the fact that what they did deliberately, others would be much and often tempted to do suddenly through the influence of such excitement. The expression, which he commanded them not, applies to the many ingredients that were contrary to God's will, and the force of it is equal to which he had expressly forbidden. Their motive, the strange fire used, the time when it was done, were all opposed to the Lord's command. And the example of disobedience thus set was fitted to be awfully ruinous in the camp. It was probably done in the morning of the day following the events of last chapter. For verse 16, where the question about eating the sin offering is asked, shows that certainly it did not take place later than the second day, since the law required all remnants of the sin offering to be burnt if kept beyond that time. And verse 16 would also lead us to think that the sons of Aaron had been occupied with other sacrifices since the consecration day. For Moses searches for the goat of the sin offering. If, too, the goat had been burnt on the very day of the consecration, Moses could scarcely have failed to observe the flames, as on that day there was no other offering but the priests. Nadab and Abihu took a censer and kindled their incense, but they did so, one, at a time not commanded. Aaron should have been consulted for this, two, in a place or in a part of the tabernacle not commanded, for they were in the open court. Verse 4, where Uziel's sons, who were, not, who were only Levites, went to them, not at the golden altar. And three, in a manner contrary to the Lord's declared will. For the priests understood that the only fire to be used in the tabernacle was to be fire from the altar, fire that had come from heaven. Probably, too, they used what spices were at hand, not the proper incense. The Lord had commanded neither the time, place, nor manner. But if the sinner's eye be blind to God, it sees not everything of the Lord's, anything of the Lord's authority. And neither education, nor station, nor privileges are sufficient to keep men from this presumption. The heart may continue unrenewed after all such blessings. The Lord forthwith vindicated his own honor. These are priests, and they stand in the holy courts, and they hold the censers of the tabernacle in their hands, and the cloud of incense is ascending from them. But the Lord is dishonored under that cloud of incense, and therefore he must go forth in majesty. The stroke comes from before the Lord. The fire shoots across the mercy seat and through the holy place and finds the sinners under their cloud of incense. How awful to observe that it crosses the mercy seat to reach them. And though their cry reaches his ear over the mercy seat, it is too late now. The Lord has risen up. It is like the events that will attend Christ's second coming when from himself, the mercy seat itself, fire shall consume his foes and their cry, though the lamb himself hear it is in vain. 
He consumes all that have defied him, and many among these shall be found in the act of holding up the incense of vain worship to the Lord. Will worship in any form is hateful to the Lord's holy nature. His will is holiness. Then we continue on here. Uh, uh, Bonar does in verse 3 about how Moses uh, tells Aaron this, right? I will be sanctified. He says this, Bonar says this, the news spread through the camp. Moses and Aaron hastened to the spot. They stood together and gazed on the dead bodies. As they gazed in awful amazement, Moses turned to his brother and said, this is what the Lord spake, saying, this is an illustration of the same holiness we saw at Sinai when he said, let the priests which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Aaron felt what Moses said, He bowed in silent submission, one look on his lost sons, another on his exalted and glorified God. It may be thus at the last day. The father will point to the ungodly as objects of his just displeasure. And the intercessor who used to yearn over these sons of men shall shall then say, let them go down quick to hell. And the redeemed respond over the smoke of their burning. Hallelujah. We can understand Aaron's silent submission as he saw God's holy act of judgment on these presumptuous sinners. But could we have gone farther and sympathized with him had he even lifted up his hands to his God and with the holy gladness in his countenance cried in presence of the camp, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Such shall be yet be the feeling of the redeemed over their own kindred who offer strange fire. Standing in Aaron's position, with all Aaron's submission, with a profoundly holy triumph to which Aaron was a stranger, the righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet, in other words, be refreshed in the bipod of the wicked. Psalm 58, verse 10. I don't know that it should say bipod. That might be a misspelling. I have to look that up, Uh, but you can see. Angels are able now to feel thus towards devils who once were most dear and beloved brethren. The glory of God will so appear as to hide all else from our view. His glory will cause us to cry, Hallelujah, Revelation 19, verse 3. Eventually we see in verses, beginning in verse 4, and Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did, according to the word of Moses. Whoever saw the dead body saw at once that it was the Lord's stroke, for the coats, the priestly coats, were left unconsumed. The Lord directed the fire as he often directs lightning, in such a manner that the persons were struck, but nothing besides. The stroke came on guilt alone, and all in the camp saw them, for the dead bodies were carried out before all. A prophet might have pointed them from that sad scene to the coming day of shame and vengeance. They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. Isaiah 66, verse 24. All saw their presumption. All must see their doom. All saw the law broken by their hands. All must see the broken law honored in their death. And the honor done to the law is made the more apparent and brought closer home to the heart by the circumstance that nothing is done that could have been avoided. 
No feeling of the tender paternal heart of Aaron is needlessly injured. None of the feelings of brother to brother are violated. In order to preserve these natural affections untouched, neither Aaron nor any of his family are asked to take part in the mournful duty of removing the consumed bodies, the ashes of the men who have themselves become a burnt offering in the Lord's sore displeasure. This duty is laid upon the sons of Uziel, cousins of the dead. The mourning family receive a messenger to sit still without putting aside their priestly character, not to dishevel their hair or rend their clothes, for they could not execute their duties in the sanctuary if they were to give themselves to mourning. Priests must restrain even the strongest natural feelings when they come into collusion with duty to God. Our master, who wept at the grave of Lazarus and spoke to his mother on the cross, yet would not be turned aside from duty by such feelings. I think of thee, how thou showest such concern on the cross for thy mother, though when thou wert preaching the gospel thou wouldst not allow her to speak with thee. But the special reason seems to be this. They bore a public character as representing to the people God's views of truth and God's opinion upon all matters. Therefore, as his representatives, they must show that such an act of judgment, however severe, was quite deserved and brought glory to his name. They who had most to do in exhibiting the mercy of God at the altar were thus foremost in testifying that Jehovah continued to be holy and righteous, true and faithful. It was for a similar reason that Ezekiel was not to lament his wife. He stood as representative of God, for it is there expressly interpreted to be done with this view. Ezekiel is unto you a sign. And here, verse 7, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. In other words, you are men set apart for his use. It is not because the Lord disapproves of our mourning over the dead, for he permits all Israel to lament this burning, both in its cause and in its effect, for both, both for the sin that occasioned it and the sorrow that resulted. But it is to show how hereafter even friends shall approve of the Lord's act of justice on the ungodly, while the smoke ascendeth forever and ever. The sons of Aaron are to show this, being representative characters. Eventually, in verses uh, 12 through uh, 15, we see that Moses speaks to Aaron um, and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons, and tells them to take the grain offering, you should eat it, and so on. Um, and eventually here, this is from Bonar again, the holy place here is meant is defined by beside the altar. It is the court made holy by what was done in it. The clean place is any spot in their dwellings, not defiled ceremonially. The reason for this reiteration of injunctions which have already been given, at least in substance in former chapters, seems to be lest Aaron and his sons should suppose that they had forfeited their privileges by that awful sin committed by some of their number. But here they are assured that all their privileges remain to them as full as ever. They are thus gently led into the true consolation under all that has happened. They are reminded of the Lord's continuing friendship and love, and with this assurance the Lord binds up those whom he has wounded. He wipes away their tears by presenting to them his unvarying and unchangeable love. For this is what is exhibited to them in receiving the allotted portions of the sacrifices of peace offerings. Herein the love of God our Savior appears. Oh, what tender, considerate kindness is discernible under this veil of types. He has here made his love abound in all wisdom and prudence, so seasonable and so full. A new manifestation of a reconciled God is the oil he pours into their wounds. 
Then in verses 16 through 18, we read, Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. See here Moses manifesting great jealousy for the honor of his God. Moses was faithful in all his house. Hebrews 3, 2. He does not address Aaron, but his sons. Yet it seems from verse 19 that Aaron too was present. He suspected that there might be some deviation from prescribed rules at such a time. And hence, before he spoke, he diligently sought. It should not have been burnt, but eaten, for in chapter 6, verse 30, the rule was laid down. If the blood of the sin offering was brought into the holy place, as was done if it was the single, if it was the sin offering of a public person or of a public nature, then it was to be burned, but if otherwise, it was to be eaten. But the sin offering here was one offered for the priests as individual sinners, and therefore was not to be brought into the holy place to reconcile that with all. Hence, Aaron and his family should have eaten it, according to chapter 6, 26 through 29. Besides, Moses perceived that by this deviation from the prescribed order, they had lost a privilege. He says, seeing it is most holy, and God hath given it to you, hinting that it was a privilege they would have found comfort in availing themselves of at such a time, it being a token of God's kindness to them. God may tenderly allow us to omit the duty, while it may be foolish in us to use the permission, as thereby we lose the privilege. The subject of verse 17 deserves more particular notice. The sense of that verse is, God has given it to you that, in bearing the iniquity of the congregation, you may have an atonement for your own souls first of all. It is only incidentally that the expression bearing sin occurs in Leviticus, namely here and in chapter 22, verse 9. But it may be right to notice what we may gather from these two from these references. We gather from this passage, one, that the individual who bears the sin of others must himself be pure from these sins. This was signified by the priest offering a sin offering by which all his own sins were borne away. Second, that this expression means more than enduring the effects of sin. For a personally guilty person might have done this. But farther, chapter 22, verse 9 teaches us, third, that to bear sin implies that the person is reckoned guilty of the sin. Hence, when it is said that the priests bore the iniquity of the sanctuary, the sense is that they were reckoned guilty until they had put that guilt upon the sacrifice and had seen that sacrifice burnt to ashes. Isaiah 53, verses 6 through 11, and 2 Peter 2, 24 must be understood in this manner. For we now see that to bear the sin of others implies that the priest is reckoned guilty by imputation of sins with which he was not personally chargeable at all, up to the moment when he had cleared these sins away in the fire of wrath, which consumes the sacrifice. But then in verse 19, we see Aaron's response to Moses. Aaron says this to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today... Would the Lord have approved? Then we read in verse 20, and when Moses heard that, he approved. Aaron first defends his sons and then himself. It seems clear to me that the sin offering and the burnt offering of his sons spoken of here must have been presented by themselves and are not the offering of chapters 9, 8 through 12. 
I understand this to have occurred the day after Aaron's consecration, and his sons had that morning presented sin offering and burnt offerings for themselves. Hence Moses addressed them, and Aaron in reply says, They have done part of the duty they have offered. Now, as this sin offering was for Nadab and Abihu, now dead, as well as for Eliezer and Ithamar, it could not be used as other similar sin offerings were, for the Lord had interrupted the usual rites attendant on such a sacrifice. It could not be said to be accepted. How then could Aaron and his sons eat of it, as if it had been accepted? Had they sat down to feast on it, they would virtually be declaring their belief that the Lord had not refused to accept the sin offering in which Nadab and Abihu had taken part whereas there was manifest tokens of displeasure all around. In these circumstances, could Aaron and his sons eat in faith? No. The family felt that there was a cloud over the son of righteousness. And here's about Moses' response. He, he saw that Aaron entered into the spirit and meaning of the rites he ministered among and was satisfied. And it is to be noticed that this attention to the spirit and not to the mere letter of the ceremonial law at the very outset indicated to Israel that the things signified by these types were their chief concern, not the bare types themselves. And how interesting to find Aaron thus exhibiting his understanding of the emblems of the tabernacle. Aaron's service was not formality. It was a worship done in the spirit and where the spirit could not be brought along with the right, he left the right undone. Herein the glorified God, or herein he glorified God, he gave him the honor due unto his name. He felt that it was not worship at all if his soul was not engaged, for God is a spirit. Thus we have a glimpse into the hidden life of Israel's worship at the very moment when undeviating attention to the statutes given is enforced by a stroke of severe righteousness. So there we have the opening chapter there in chapter 10 of our reading this week. And it really sets the stage again, reminding us that God is holy. Uh, and it's, it's purposefully rigorous and uh, emphasizing God's holiness and righteous to drive Israel and us out of ourselves and out of our trust in ourselves into the Savior who can do and has done all that we could exceedingly and, and more than we could all think or want. Everything that he gives to us freely in himself, in Jesus Christ, as a free, full, and complete salvation. So, he does this. This is what happens with the, 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 the sons of Aaron and um, the sacrifice there. And, and, and it reminds us the importance of worship. I want to, uh, here's an article to kind of help us think further about this principle of the importance of worship. As we can see all throughout Leviticus, the detail that God goes into to specify the particular ways that he is to be worshiped. Um, this is from Adriel Sanchez, five ways God might be displeased with your worship. Now, because we don't do sacrifices like this, but we still are called to worship. Uh, this is from Adriel Sanchez. First of all, your worship isn't rooted in God's word, but extra biblical or unbiblical traditions. Many people are shocked when they read the account of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. These two priests offered to the Lord strange fire and as a result were killed by God. While biblical scholars have varied opinions on what exactly made their offering so offensive, one thing is clear. God did not approve of their particular form of worship. Jesus told the Pharisees that their extra-biblical traditions kept them from obeying God's word. God is displeased with our traditions in worship that keep us from actually obeying God's word. 
If our worship practices don't align with the Bible, they cannot be pleasing to the Lord. Some wonder why God is so particular about the way he's worshipped, and the answer to that question is very important. Worship isn't just an opportunity for us to express our feelings. It is the primary way in which the faith, in other words, the doctrines which define what we believe as Christians, is passed down from one generation to the next. Unbiblical worship teaches people lies about God. And since God mustn't be misrepresented, our worship must be rooted in his revelation rather than our own innovation. Second way that we can um, worship God or God might be displeased with your worship is you worship God while being unreconciled with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Among many of the shocking things Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount are these words. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 5, 23-24. During the days of the temple, when people would go to worship God with their sacrifices, Jesus said that unresolved tension between worshipers kept them from properly offering their gifts to God. While we no longer worship according to the temple ceremonies today, the principle is applicable for believers under the new covenant. The French theologian John Calvin highlighted the shocking nature of this command. When he commands those who have injured any of their brethren to be reconciled to him before they offer their guilt, his meaning is that so long as a difference with our neighbor is kept up by our fault, we have no access to God. It is a false and empty profession of worshiping God, which is made by those who, after acting unjustly towards their brethren, treat them with haughty disdain. The Apostle John said, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20 Simply put, our worship of God is hindered by our unwillingness to reconcile with brothers and sisters in the faith. Thirdly, your worship respects persons and doesn't make room for the poor. Christianity today has suffered from the celebrity pastor culture. Sometimes, unknowingly, we elevate the man instead of the message and give special treatment to some while others are neglected. Jesus Christ is no respecter of persons and our worship shouldn't elevate some people above others either. James said, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James 2, 1-4 In Isaiah 58, God said that true worship looked like humbling ourselves before God, repenting of our sins, and ministering to the impoverished. If in our worship of God, we've forgotten about our neighbors who are in need, especially the poor in our own churches, there's something terribly wrong. Fourthly, your worship confuses and scares non-Christians. Some years back, a friend of mine told me the story of a church she visited prior to coming to faith in Jesus. She said the experience traumatized her. Members of the church were running up and down the aisles screaming. A few were in a back corner. She was told they were speaking in tongues. The pastor behind the pulpit looked at her and said, There are backsliders among us. She sat through the pandemonium and left confused without ever hearing the gospel. 
Paul said, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? All things should be done decently and in order. Paul's principle of doing things decently and in order is applicable to our worship today. There are two real dangers here. The first danger is that in our desire to reach people, we water down worship. We remove all talk of sin and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. We avoid biblical language because we think it's too archaic. This ends up confusing people because it's a bait-and-switch strategy for growing the church. We remove everything distinctive about the faith in order to make people comfortable, and then we expect them to embrace the faith once they're settled in. More often than not, if something other than Jesus is attracting people to your church, it will be confusing for them when at last they're introduced to the real Jesus of Scripture. The second danger is that in our desire to be faithful to God, we're all speaking in tongues. I don't mean the charismatic gift. I mean sometimes we can be so tribal and heady that we lose our ability to speak to outsiders in an intelligible way. Years ago, I had a non-Christian friend who said he wanted to come and hear me preach. I was still interning at the time, and I was so excited that he was actually going to come to church. After the service, I caught up with him and asked, How was it? What did you think? Somewhat overwhelmed, he replied, It was cool. I didn't really understand anything, though. My heart sunk. Thinking back on that incident, I can see why he was confused. A lot of the jargon I used in my sermon was understandable to people within the church, but speaking in tongues for those unfamiliar with the lingo. We have to carefully explain the scriptures in a way that those unfamiliar with the Bible can understand. We don't water down the text, but we lovingly preach it in a way that is accessible for all. Worship shouldn't confuse people because it's a bait and switch, but it also shouldn't confuse people because it's unintelligible for the average person. Worship that honors God is faithful to the scriptures, and it speaks the truth of scripture to the people who need to hear it in clear and understandable ways. Lastly, your worship minimizes the things that God values for his people. Early Christian worship focused on the apostolic doctrine and the ordinances which Jesus left for his church to observe. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Many have noted that the reference here to the breaking of bread is probably speaking of Holy Communion because the Greek text includes the definite article before the word bread. This is the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper. Christian worship should be devoted to apostolic teaching found in Scripture, prayer, community, and communion. God values these things for his people because he knows that they lift our eyes above the present circumstances and on to Jesus Christ. Worship should always fix our eyes on Jesus and his work for us, and worship that places the spotlight anywhere but Christ and him crucified is not pleasing to the Lord. So those are some ways that we can commit similar sins to Nadab and Abihu in our worship. We offer strange worship, unauthorized worship, or our worship doesn't please the Lord. And we want to do this in a way that pleases him, in a way that he calls us to in Scripture. Well, lastly, I want to thank you with you about... Um, uh, the, the, uh, I believe we're going to talk here. Yeah. About lepers. Cause eventually in this section of scripture, we're reading this week, um, we, we get the 
clean, unclean laws, right? So clean and unclean animals in chapter 11, uh, purification after childbirth, chapter 12, laws about leprosy in chapter 13, laws for cleansing lepers, chapter 14 in their houses, and then uh, bodily discharges in 15. So we begin this talk of what makes something impure or pure or clean or unclean. And, uh, and so there's a sickness aspect also to this with, with leprosy. This article here is called Jesus, Thank You. This is by Bradley Gray. I believe he's a Baptist pastor in Pennsylvania. Um, but yeah, he, he has this to say, as we kind of think about this broad topic of leprosy and the unclean, clean distinction that we see uh, Leviticus talking about here in these sections we're reading. Though not unique to him, there is a motif which comes to the fore more prominently in Luke's gospel. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, St. Luke says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This determination, this determination of the Lord Jesus to go to Jerusalem is thematic throughout the rest of the gospel. After spending his time ministering to an assortment of poor, sick, and needy folk in the region surrounding Galilee, a turn occurs in which Jesus' attention becomes laser-focused on journeying to Jerusalem. And with that attention, we are likewise to understand that he is journeying to the cross. Venturing towards this, that city meant venturing towards death. Jesus, of course, was well aware of the manner in which his earthly ministry would come to an end. But with such a purpose made public, we are able to understand his words with heightened clarity. From this point forward in Luke, the cross colors all of Jesus's interactions, overshadowing every step he took and every syllable he uttered like the cross which hovers behind pastors when they preach. The closer he got to that city, the more vocal he became about what his intentions really looked like. Throughout his ministry, but especially this journey, Jesus was determined to show all who followed him that he was indeed the long-sought-after Messiah, and that he was establishing a kingdom. But all those messianic expectations were about to be turned on their head, because he is the Messiah who dies, the king whose crown is made of thorns, and the king whose kingdom is far more inclusive than ever imagined. Such is the point which Luke stresses more than any other gospel. Unlike the other gospel texts, Luke showcases the Lord's stubborn insistence on associating with those who were considered social outcasts. Jesus' declaration that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost is the paradigm which Luke explores the most, demonstrating the wonderfully gracious ways in which God's heart, as Dana Ortland attests, is drawn to those whom the world holds at arm's length. Those who you'd least expect to be invited are the first to be welcomed. From shepherds to tax collectors to the demon-possessed, even lepers. Along the journey towards Jerusalem, Jesus and his followers encounter a group of lepers. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, Luke seventeen eleven through 13 Although Luke isn't specific, the inference is that Jesus is traveling along the border between southern Galilee and northern Samaria a remote locale which was apparently prime real estate for those who were outcast by society. Which is just to say that Jesus' chosen route took him straight through a leper's stomping grounds. Others would have certainly chosen a different course, but the Lord had purpose in journeying through this country. As Luke informs us later, Luke 17 verse 16, this was a mixed group of lepers comprised of Jews and Samaritans, it's not often you'd find these two demographics standing shoulder to shoulder, but whatever racial tensions might have existed between them previously were pointless now on account of their common condition. Mutual misery 
shared heartache has a way of reducing to nothing any perceived social barriers. What would it matter that a Jew was hanging out with a Samaritan now? They'd been given a new category by which they were to identify themselves. They were lepers. Affliction, misfortune, and persecution drive men together, notes J.C. Ryle, and make them forget points of difference, which in time of prosperity and ease are thought very important. Lepers, of course, were prohibited from any semblance of a normal life, being forced to live in isolation because of their affliction. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. Leviticus 13.46 Such regulations hail from the Mosaic Law, in which meticulous details are given on how to diagnose and manage those with leprosy. The designation unclean was a scarlet letter in those days. Receiving such a verdict was akin to receiving a death sentence. In fact, lepers were often considered already dead, since there was no cure for you other than supernatural intervention. Jesus' journey through leper country, then, brings him in close proximity to those who were off-limits, which I have to imagine didn't sit too well with his disciples. And yet, if you think about it, this is exactly what Jesus did when he came to this earth in the first place. When we are told that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, we are to understand that announcement as God taking up residence in a world inhabited by those who are already dead. This world is broken, full of sin, which means that in Christ, God purposed to draw close to those who share a common condition. We're all sinners. Sinners are all that there are. And just like leprosy, there is no known remedy for our condition. We are dead men walking, dead in the trespasses and sins where we are, condemned already where we stand. That is, until Jesus shows up. Because when he shows up, mercy shows up too. As Jesus passes by, the lepers cry out for Jesus to have mercy on them. That they call Jesus master indicates that they had at least heard something about the miracles he had performed elsewhere. News had spread fast about the healer from Nazareth, especially among the leper colonies. Jesus, of course, already had one leper healing under his belt, Luke 5, which surely caused no small stir in the surrounding regions. The sight of Jesus, therefore, is the sight of hope incarnate. By all accounts, these lepers were only clamoring for relief from their physical ailments. They desperately craved, and rightly so, that their condition be cleared up, that they might have a life that they might see their families once again. Jesus, however, responds to their cry in the most unexpected way. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests, Luke seventeen fourteen. This, of course, is in keeping with the Mosaic Codes, which declared that lepers whose condition had cleared were forced to receive authorization from the priests that they could re-enter normal life. What's so surprising, though, is Jesus' prescribed cure. Unlike before, where the leper was healed by Jesus' physical touch, Jesus just gives them his word. He tells them to go before the priest as if they're already clean, which they weren't. Nothing had happened yet. There was no preceding sign or demonstrable action that clued them into the cleansing to come. Jesus didn't touch them or make a paste or even say a prayer as he did, often did on other occasions. Instead, all they had to go on was Jesus' word of promise. We might well imagine their disappointment. This was not at all what they expected the healer of Nazareth to do for them. 
The surprise of the Lord's words likely left them speechless for a moment or two before, as I imagine it, they started trudging for the nearest synagogue. And as they went, they suddenly began to notice their skin clearing up. The boils and blemishes which besotted their flesh start to dissipate. Their steps feel sure, and soon their slow walk turns into a full-on sprint, accompanied by shrieks of laughter as their bodies are made whole and their skin made new. But then one of them stops in his tracks, realizing the magnitude of what has just occurred. He saw that he was healed, verse 15, but more than that, he had been given a new lease on life. In a single afternoon, he went from a dead man walking to fully cleansed. He wasn't just cured, he was reborn. Upon realizing this, he retraces his steps all the way back to Jesus' feet, where he falls prostrate in humility and reverence. Jesus raises a good point, though. We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine, he inquires. All ten feckless lepers were healed, but only one returned to his healer's feet to say thank you. The other nine were apparently quite content with the healing they had received. The mind-blowing part of this entire story, though, isn't that only one leper came back to give thanks, but that the Lord Jesus healed all ten men, knowing full well that only one would come back. He dispensed the uncanny mercy of total healing without pausing to adjudicate if that healing would be appropriately appreciated. Jesus didn't hesitate in the slightest before gifting each one the miracle of being restored. That's just who he is. He is a God who gives ceaselessly. God in Christ doesn't bestow his grace to us to the degree that we're grateful. Rather, he is a God who gives himself his very life for the sake of those who might never realize it, who might never say thank you. This is what the cross is all about. The cross is the manifestation of God's saving action on behalf of a world filled with feckless sinners. As the son suffers the agonies of sin and death, he thereby makes provision for every sinner to receive salvation. The self-donation of God in Christ is perfect down payment for the world's sin. When the son gave himself up to the cruelties of Golgotha, he was likewise giving himself as a ransom for all. The gift he extends to everyone is the gift of his own life. Much like the leper's invitation, the gospel invites sinners to stand before the Father as they're already clean, already righteous, because by this incarnate word, they are. Even though only one leper responds to the healing given to him by Christ, he stands to demonstrate a most important lesson. Then one of them, the text says, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. These aren't merely supplemental details which move the text forward. These details unfold Luke's fundamental purpose in telling this story in the first place. By healing this leper from Samaria, Jesus' followers were made to see that not only did the doors of the kingdom of heaven swing wide enough for untouchables, but they also welcomed the undesirables too. The kingdom of God is cluttered with surprises, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it. His righteous domain is made up of the wrong sort of people. Now, no longer at a distance, this Samaritan leper falls at Jesus' feet, giving thanks and praise to the one who had saved him from certain death. All of which to say, this Samaritan leper shows us the proper way to respond to God, which is through worship. This pitiful leper made whole by the mere word of God is struck with the intent to worship at the feet of his healer. In so doing, he wasn't looking to pay back the healer through his homage. Neither was he looking to curry more favor from him by worshiping him. 
Instead, he was simply saying, thank you. As we frequent our churches to worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, our thoughts shouldn't be driven by what we can get or what we can do. Rather, our hearts ought to be so captivated by what we already have that we cannot help but worship. Worshiping the Lord Sunday after Sunday isn't the means by which we give God something or pay him back for anything. It is simply the communal way in which those who've been restored say, thank you. Worship happens when we realize both our fatal disease and the ready deliverance from it in Christ alone. When we come to church, then we should see ourselves as lepers, as those who should have had nothing to do with the Savior. And yet we are the ones for whom God in Christ has come. We are those whom he has made whole, made new, made righteous by his word of grace. And thus, as we go to the Father, we are clean. Well, there you have it. In Christ, we are clean from all spiritual diseases, and we are welcome in the Father's presence. Thank you for listening to this. We're going to be in the Day of Atonement next week, Leviticus chapter 16. And keep reading the Old Testament. Enjoy the Psalms. Take care, and God bless.